Hello, this is Jeff Wright on behalf of Credo Alliance. What you're about to hear is the audio from a Spaces discussion Credo Alliance held with Tyler Cox and Michael Clary on men, women, and God's design. We asked Tyler to host the meeting because he is well-read and has an agile mind. We asked Michael because he's written one of the best books of the year, God's Good Design, which answers the question, how can Christian men and women live faithfully in a world confused over sexuality and gender? You'll soon hear what a profitable conversation came of this period. One note, we had to combine two different recordings to provide the entire conversation. You'll hear this sound in between the two. Finally, a quick word about Credo Alliance. Credo Alliance is a unique Baptist union of confessional churches, elders, and individuals committed to building the Baptist future. You can find out more at CredoAlliance.com and on X at Credo underscore Alliance. Here's Tyler and Michael. Welcome. This is a Credo Alliance podcast, and thank you for joining. My name is Tyler Cox, um, a friend of the Credo Alliance. And uh, well, right now we have Michael Clary on who's going to talk. We're going to talk a little bit about an excellent book he's written on God's good design for human sexuality, uh, one that's grounded in scripture and nature. I've read this book at least twice maybe more like one in 70%, 75%. (laughs) And I've used quite a bit of it for a Sunday school class recently. I found it incredibly useful, very practical, uh, very biblical, and overall uh, very unique. And I can explain that in just a bit. Um, But uh, without further ado, Michael, before we jump into the book, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, um, your hopes and dreams, all that good stuff. Hey, folks. I'm, I'm assuming you can hear me. Um, so I've, yep, can hear you. you can hear me. Great. Okay. So I've, I've tuned into some of these Twitter spaces before as a listener. I've never spoken on one. So um, just want to, yeah, just make sure that, that I'm using the technology right here. Um, so yeah, I, my name is Michael Clary. I'm, I'm a regular guy, pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio. I planted this church uh, called Christ the King Church in 2010. And um, so we basically, we, we, we're located pretty close to the University of Cincinnati, about four or five blocks away. And so we've had a steady stream of, you know, people that are just like millennials and young people. Now it's like the Gen Z people are coming through. So we have a bit of a window into the future by ministering amongst a really young population. And what I've, I've just noticed some things over the years about the way they think about sexuality, the way they, um, some of the, the biggest challenges and hangups are. Um, and so we've, that, that, that's kind of the, the little bit of the background behind my interest in this is um, having been around a lot of folks that I uh, think are a bit of an indicator of where things are headed. Um, and the book has got a lot of things in there about her um, and not minister to them necessarily, but just it kind of, it, the book ministers to them. It's like it, it is written as somebody who is uh, conversant with a lot of their concern uh the way they think about sexuality so that's what do you think's drawn all those young people to cincinnati is it just the the, the city they like or is it it's work? joe burrow it's the bengals <laughs> is it really <laughs> um no, no it's um, it, i mean cincinnati's a cool town um they've they've really done a lot of innovating in the last since i moved mm-hmm. here they did a lot to revitalize the downtown um so the downtown is pretty cool um, a lot of fun stuff to do, and uh, they've they've tried to remake the city, the downtown core especially, as a place for um, young people to attract younger people uh, to the city. Um, and they know the city planners. I mean, they've done a great job transforming the the riverfront um, and some of the the camp the campus. The University of Cincinnati campus is growing like crazy. Um, it's huge. It's like you know. I, I don't remember exactly. It's like 45,000 students, something uh, to that effect. So it's, oh, wow. Uh, wow, yeah, pretty big. Uh, we don't, I don't, I, you know, I thought about it. I don't think I've met one Bengals fan in my life. And so <laughs> I, was, I, I thought I just remade that realization uh, through this conversation. There weren't but, any Bengals fans until Joe Burrow uh, got recruited or got <laughs> drafted rather. Um, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, it sounds like it's a good opportunity. Um, so you're a church planner and I know, uh, you, you just were at a conference, right? Recently where you, uh, had a talk about church planning. So yeah. Um, County before country. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening, go and go and check that out after this. Um, I admittedly, I haven't heard it yet, but I, I do plan on listening to it. 
Well, Michael, I do want to, I want to rewind just a little bit. It's the year is 2021. Oh, another thing. One of my best burgers I've ever had was outside of Cincinnati. Bards. I'm just going to plug Bards. Credo Alliance doesn't get any, any sort of uh, residuals from, from Bards saying this, but uh, it's, it was delicious. But I want to rewind to the year 2021 and 2022 to a somewhat younger Michael at his local coffee shop or his church or maybe he's just uh, at home with his family and he decides you know i'm gonna write a book on god's design for sexuality god's design for gender why now why not 10 years ago or why not you know wh- why did you what were you thinking in that time what were, why did you decide that so um to, to answer that question i'd need to rewind the clock a little bit earlier than that even um I would take it back to 2018. Um, so I, 2018, I wrote a Facebook post um, about, uh, basically it was an anti-feminism. Um, it, it was something to the effect of the feminist life script has let me down. It was written by a woman who's not a Christian. Mm-hmm. And she was sharing her testimony um, of testimony as a non-believer, just her sharing her story, her experience as um, a young feminist woman who did not buy into the life and ended up um, basically living according to what we would call traditional sexuality. Um, and she wrote it as a warning um, to help younger women to identify some of the pitfalls of feminism and say, hey, don't fall for this. Don't follow this life script. I thought it was helpful. It was not written from a Christian. So that is also that's interesting. Um, just to have whenever non-believers arrive at views that align with the Bible, uh, that I always find that interesting when I run across that. So, I mean, I, I just kind of, I shared it I'm like, Hey, some helpful stuff in here, some common sense. And that, that kicked up a real controversy in, um, in my, in my church, a lot of my friends, um, to where a lot of people were super offended. Mm. Um, and they thought, you know, that's so hurtful and, you know, this is anti-women. And women are really harmed by this. And that's so insensitive. And, you know, to my thinking, I'm like, this is, this is, you know, pretty ordinary, normal type of things that she was saying. It's common sense. It's reality. Um, but, but people, people really got uh, up in arms about it, worked up about it. So one of the, one of the things, cause it was written by a non-believer and it was written, not, wasn't really written, but it was, it was something that um, people got. I think, I think she just wrote it in a way that was very, uh, pe- people just got offended by it, uh, the, the style or something. And th- it was not a style that they're used to hearing from me. And so I recommended it and they read it with uh, assuming that I would give unqualified endorsement to every word of the article. Um, <laughs> Do you remember the name of the article? The article, you're talking about the name of the article? Yeah, that she wrote. Or was it, was it a book? No, it was an article on the Federalist. And the Federalist does tend to you know, they, they, they can be a little provocative sometimes. Um, there's been some good articles come from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the Federalist, uh, you know, generally, but it was, I, I think there was, there was, it was kind of at least than I, than I realized. And I think it was called the feminist life script let me down. And wh- so one of the things that was really controversial in it, there's a chin there from OkCupid and it was a survey and OkCupid, I think is like a dating website or app or something. Um, but it, the chart in there was like from their own internal research saying who, um, you know, who are men and women attracted to? What do they find desirable? And men, well, women are attracted to a man who is generally about her age. So if you have a 40 year old woman, she's going to look for a man who's either 35 to 45 generally within a few years of her own age. If you ask a man what's attractive, it's, it's a straight line all the way down. No matter the man could be 90 years old. What he finds attractive is a 20 to 22 year old young, young woman. Um, and that, that's a fact. Now, some people think, well, that's sexist. He shouldn't be that way. You know, that's wrong. You know, women, and it's like that. It doesn't matter what we think should be true. What matters is what is the reality of the world that we live in. And so what, okay, Cupid, um, they were just, they, this was their own research about how to best, you know, tweak their tool for people to you know, meet each other and date. But this woman cited it and she was, the point she was making is that if you're a 22 year old young woman, you are at your, uh, the peak of your, from a worldly standpoint, you are, you are at your peak desirability. Um, 
And that's when that's the optimal time for young women to be thinking about getting married and mm-hmm. and then getting, um, you know, having children because women, uh, their their peak childbearing years will be in their 20s and 30s. The feminist life script that she was arguing against would say, no, you can wait until, you know, you focus on your career now, build out your career. And then, you know, you know, maybe you'll get married and have kids later in life when you're, you know, in your 30s or maybe even in your 40s. And this woman wrote the article. She was like, that's wrong. And that not only is it, it's not, she wasn't arguing from a moral standpoint. She was saying that's not realistic. And then you're going to have a lot of women who do that. They follow the life script and they're going to find themselves not lonely, uh, right? What's say again? Lonely and regretful. Yeah, they'll be lonely. And, and, and the thing is, the thing that really upset people, she made the very realistic um, case that, you know, hated if you will, but she was just like, if you're 30 or if you're 40, um, your men are not going to find you as attractive as a young, you know, a woman in her young early 20s. Um, now you can think that that's, that's wrong and they shouldn't do that, but that doesn't matter. She's, she's just pointing out the fact that this is what men find desirable. So a woman in her forties might think, well, man, 35 to 45 is what I, I find desirable. But if a man who is 35 to 45, he's still going to be attracted to this 22 year old younger woman. Um, the yes, point being overall is, point is that, um, it's it's kind of going against this this life script you mentioned that this feminist life script it, that delayed marriage is more ideal and you know you hear this in the church too I, I'm pretty sure I've heard this from guys like even Tim Keller um, this this uh, delay this idea of delayed marriage being um, normal you know kind of normalized yeah. um, it makes me thankful that my wife and I married very young my wife was 18 actually when we <laughs> we got married. Um, <laughs> But but I, you hear this in the church too, and so it's not surprising to me that uh, even in your own church you saw pushback to that. Oh yeah, when you, if you're in a if you're in a college area, you've got men and women that are training for careers, many uh, oftentimes high highly demanding careers that will take the best of their teens and maybe even into their thirties. By the time they've completed their education, they've done their master's or doctoral work. Then they get into their career and they've established themselves in a career for enough time to where they can say, okay, now that I've got my education and I've got my career, I'm ready for a family. You might find yourself being in your thirties and you're looking around thinking, okay, I'm ready for, you know, I I, I want married life. And you might have put it off earlier, not prioritized it, not thought it was a big deal. And then now when you're ready to settle down, your options are limited. And so I, I think that... That is demonstrably true. Um, it's it's just playing the numbers. It's demonstrably. It's easy to say. It's easy to see how the, the fact. Yeah. What is controversial is that it's an uncomfortable fact. It's a fact that we that a lot of Christians they don't want to acknowledge that. They want to say, well, Christian men they shouldn't do that. A Christian man should love me just for for who I am on the inside or whatever. And I'm, and just de, de, to deny the real world realities and that that's what they do. And so they get offended whenever you point out something that it's kind of like, you know, the whole, uh, the arguments that have played out on Twitter over the last few weeks about, uh, physical fitness. I mean, it's an absurd <laughs> thing to argue against physical fitness as though that's ungodly. Right. But, but the impulse that we see in a lot of Christians is to just deny the facts, deny the, the biological realities, the real world realities of the way that men and women are and what men and women are attracted to. Um, so the point being that there was a lot of women that I I wanted them to not follow that feminist life script as a pastor. I wanted them to see, hey, your best options for for family and for children. You don't want to put this off. Um, you want to. This is a big life decision, and you want to prioritize that and pursue that and like make that a big you know you know account for that in the planning of your life now uh, rather than waiting until you're thirty. So all these people got upset. And I'm back to my story. <laughs> I'll tie it up here. Yeah. All these people got upset and I basically concluded, okay, I need to put this in my own words. I need to express with a pastor's heart, with, with love for my people, here is what I'm trying to say. Um, and there's a whole world of beauty and glory that God has created uh, that, is, that finds its fulfillment through sexuality, through manhood and womanhood creating households, building up families, um, and 
people are just throwing it away and casting it aside as though it doesn't matter. And then you have publishers like, you know, Crossway and Gospel Coalition talking about the idolatry of motherhood, the idolatry of the family. Yeah. And it's and it's it's it is sending the wrong message at a time when we urgently need people to know the value of marriage and family and household life. So that's that's I started uh, developing the material uh, in 2018, um, ended up you know publishing the book last year or, or this earlier this year. Well, um, I saw and in, in, on the same lines of the story you just gave about that article and then just reading your book and rereading it. Um, yesterday, I don't know if you saw this trending yesterday. I hate the word trending, but that's just the word I'm going to use. But I saw this trending yesterday. I saw like Matt Walsh talk about it, but, um, it was this young woman who is like coming to the realization, um, as to why men she's attracted to don't want to marry her. Um, it was just this, like, you could see it in her eyes that she just like came to this like shocking realization. And, you know, she's, so she's, uh, um, you know, very bulky because she bulks up at the gym, not in a, in a fit way. She's not fit, but just in a very masculine way, very bulky and has very masculine tattoos and kind of loud. And she kind of was, she's kind of a girl boss and has this kind of swagger crude abrasive, you know, she goes to the gym. She's one of the guys and she's having this realization that, Oh, these men I'm attracted to, they have wives that are, um, you know, they, they probably go to the gym, but they're not bulked up. They're mm-hmm. uh, uh, soft-spoken. They're uh, quiet in a virtuous sense and um, have this, um, you know, this gentle beauty to them. And she's she's realizing like this, that, that men are not attracted to um, women who are acting like men, right? And right. The too, that women aren't to Homer Simpson or Peter Griffin. And yet, or the it, the biggest lie in all of television is the Big Bang Theory, right? That these um, kind of very passive um, males can just, you know, are attracted to these women, right? They don't, women don't want effeminate, weak men. And so it's like this, this book is excellent in sussing this out. And um, I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, it, just your story about the the feminist and then reading your book. Um, really shines a light on this lie. At the end of the day, that woman, she's believed a lie that her whole life of this kind of girl boss routine and yeah. men watch these shows and believe this lie that they could just be effeminate or weak or um, passive and think they can find a woman who is, who is interested in them. And it's caused this chaos. Um, yeah. yeah the, the, so I, I haven't seen this, the Matt Walsh thing that you're referring to, but the, the phenomena is so familiar now. And, you, we have a society that is rebelling against reality itself. Mm. And when you rebel against reality and everybody is a co-conspirator to a degree. Um, and so like if, if you have a society to where everybody's in on the lie, everybody wants to believe the same lie and they, they want to participate in the same rebellion. Eventually gravity wins. Reality mm. catches up. And so what you're describing, I haven't seen it, but what you're describing sounds like a woman who, suddenly gravity won and she realized wait a minute i've been lied to i've been told i can look like a man act like a man i'll do all the things that men do totally cast aside my femininity not act like a woman at all and men will desire that the kind of man that i want will desire that and then when she realizes no men are not attracted to that men find it uh, off-putting and it doesn't matter that um that you know, the TV shows and the sitcoms and all this, they all are telling the same lie. They, so they make it seem as though that's what men want. Men want this girl boss, you know, men are really impressed by a woman's accomplishments and achievements and, and all that thing. And the thing is like, that's not, men don't want, um, he does, he does not want to be married to a female version of himself or Sagan or one of his bros. Yeah. (laughs) It's It's like, we are attracted. It's like the, you know, the old, saying is true opposites attract so like generally like masculine uh, you know the more masculine a man is um he's going to he's going to desire a woman to who will be feminine not just a female version of of himself not a female but masculine uh, woman and so like that that that's the thing that you're describing right there tyler that that breaks my heart for people who they grow up in this world and they watch the shows they see the movies and i see the tropes all the time and I, and I'm just like, I, I want to scream. I'm like, you are lying. You are lying to people. And, and yet people believe it 
And so you have these young girls that think what will make me happy and fulfilled will be to um, spend all of my youth getting a degree and then a master's degree and then a doctorate and then doing a fellowship and then starting my career. And then, you know, by the time I'm in my mid thirties, then I'll have a family. I'm like, one, you may not have the same available to you, but two, God made you a woman and your gravity is going to win. Eventually you'll, you will, there will come a time when you'll realize this is not fulfilling. This is not what I want. And if you look at all the studies, the studies are all over the place. Like liberal women are not happy. The most (laughs) happy people in our society are married conservative people. They, they like on few of the, whenever they've done the surveys and so forth, the happiness surveys, uh, the happiest people are people that are conservative and they're married, uh, and they have traditional gender roles. Um, that's because they're not, those are the people that are trying to live with the grain of reality and not rebel against it. Um, and so the same thing with men, like, you know, like, you know, in our society, men are told that you need to be a nice guy. Um, mm. and, and the nice, you know, sweet, tender hearted guy, and, and these are not bad things. But it is those things are held up as the preeminent virtues that men should pursue is just to be as nice as you could possibly be. And then, yeah, yeah, servant leader. And and yeah, so Aaron Wren has done some great writing on servant leader, which is the phrase servant leader is true and biblical on the face of it. But the way that it is used is basically no leader and all servant, which is basically the more you're a doormat for people, the more they'll like you. And there's a book, uh, I can't remember the guy's name that wrote it, but the book is called No More Nice Guy. Um, yeah, yeah. That's do you know that book? I haven't read it, and I'm blanking on the author's name too, but I, I've heard that recommended so many times. It's, I've heard it's excellent. Yeah. Well, the basic idea of, of that book, um, and this is not a Christian book, so if, you're, if you hear this and you think it's a Christian book, you will be very disappointed. It's not a Christian book. This is a non-Christian guy. And many of his assumptions and conclusions are wrong. But the basics of the book is that men, a lot of nice guy men, what they do is they have this this subconscious contract that they make. And the contract is, if I am just nice enough, then women will like me, women will desire me, and my, my life will go well if I'm just nice enough. And the, the point that he makes throughout the book, he said, like, one, that's wrong, two, um, that um, it, your, your life will actually, it, it'll, it'll make your life more miserable because you're, you're not acting in a way that is truly masculine. Um, yeah. so, you know, it, if, if you can handle the, uh, you know, some of the secular nonsense and the, you know, the, there's a lot of gay stuff in there. I was like, if, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot about the book that I don't like and would not approve of or recommend, but there are a lot of things that are, are helpful and good in that book that could at least make it worth, um, you know, extracting the most helpful things from it right well both of those extremes just kind of the girl boss and the nice guy i think are probably the two most common ones we kind of see in our culture right now and i do i want to get back to your book because your book really addresses both very well even though not direct well it does actually do it directly but uh indirectly as well um and one of the most helpful parts of your book i think the introduction alone is just invaluable. I mean, get if you're on here and you haven't read Michael's book, uh, get it for the whole book, but get it just for the introduction alone. So uh, for context, um, what you do is you you basically ask, you, you say, how do we get here? I mean, how do we get here where there's 60 or three, I don't remember how many it was. It was a lot of uh, pediat- pediatric gender transition uh, hospitals. Pediatric, that's just pediatric, has ex- just, you know, 100 times more than there was 10 years ago like how do we get here mm-hmm. you basically start with you know gnosticism you say um we got here because of gnosticism it starts or, or rather it starts with gnosticism uh which separates the body and spirit and then goes to feminism and then from feminism you have uh contraceptives kind of the the, the pill and then you talk about androgyny and then uh Things speed up in the mid 2010s with the Obergefell decision, which uh, legalized homosexuality. And finally, we have this widespread acceptance of transgenderism. And it's this excellent just um, path you see here that is uh, very clear. And my question about this is, I think a lot of evangelicals are kind of waking up now. They're, They're realizing the live and let live mindset just doesn't work, doesn't work. And, um, 
they think, oh, you know what? Yeah, we actually have to do something about drinking story hour. Or, yeah, there's something needs to be done about, um, you know, pediatric hospitals that are that are carving up, uh, you know, young children. And uh, they're saying we simply can't have a society ex- that accepts that. I feel like they grasp that. But I feel like the harder battle is with something like feminism, right? So mm-hmm. how do you convince, you know, how do you convince just this, the average evangelical um, that the solution isn't just dealing with Dracula story hour? We have to go back decades and, you know, fix that problem, too. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. We, when you buy into faulty assumptions, if your presuppositions are faulty, then you can't just address the symptoms right. um, because you're going to end up back in the same place again. Um, and so what, what we want to do is it, like our, like Francis Schaeffer talked about how we, we tend to see the people tend to see the world in bits and pieces and they don't see totals. They don't see holistically. And what I try to do in that first chapter is to, is to show a linkage of ideas that, that I think are ultimately demonic. And it is a, it is a form of, um, of deception and, and, uh, error that, like once you buy into that initial some of the initial building blocks of that error, you're going to end up in the same place every time. Um, so the Gnostic idea that our body is uh, our body does not matter and have any determinative function as far as who we are. So a Gnostic would think who you are on the inside is your true self, right? Um, but you know the body doesn't matter because the body is evil and the material world is evil. So who you are on the inside is what really matters. So the Gnostic idea was to separate body from who you are or your essence. And then feminism is just a Gnostic idea because feminism wants to apply that idea to the feminine body, the female body, and just and say like, well, the fact that women are the ones that bear children and nurture, uh, feed children, um, that doesn't matter anything because men and women should be the same. They should be interchangeable in every way. So feminism is a Gnostic idea applied to one of the sexes and then the the result of that is this interchangeability the androgyny and androgyny is not a new phenomena it's an old 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 phenomena it goes way back to like pagan mythology where uh, men and women are seen as interchangeable and that like like not a lot of people believe that androgyny is the most enlightened ideal that like the ideal human being is androgynous yeah. And that goes back thousands of years. And you see this having a renaissance now where that's what people think. Um, like if you, you look at, uh, you know, just fashion shows, you know, out of New York City or whatever. It's like androgyny is all over the place. The The women are butch looking and the men are gay looking. Um, and everybody is just it's like this gender blending thing where everything is all blended together because androgyny is seen as the ideal. Um then we you add in a layer of technology, which I you know I mentioned contraception in the book, but really it's it's the use of technology to manipulate the body to and that's a it's like a technological way of rebelling against your body. Um, so it used to be cross dressing was all anybody could do, um, and you know a woman could rebel against her body by you know using control pills to just completely shut down her reproductive ability, but now that technology is being applied to literally um trying to fashion a penis or right. uh, fashion a vagina and y- using surgeries and so forth all of that w- all of these things were are ideas that are baked into the culture but i, I really think the obergefell decision in 2015 was the cultural atom bomb um and what it did was it took all of these fringe ideas that were philosophical and it gave them cultural legitimacy immediately Right. Uh, so the Obergefell decision then, and I noticed that right around the time Obergefell was being decided, there was a, um, I believe it was Newsweek magazine. Um, they did this cover story, Transgender Moment. And it was um, w- within a year of Obergefell, transgender all of a sudden emerged as this new issue. And, it, and it, I mean, it's crazy, Tyler. This was, this is 2015. I mean, that's, that's yesterday. That's, yeah, it feels it was like, this, it feels like, uh, a lot longer than that, but you're right. It wasn't. That was the. I think you use a poem by. Um, uh, I don't. I'm blanking on what it was, but you. You basically it's a Hemingway. Yeah, it's it Hemingway was a Hemingway one. one. Yeah, that that quote spelled it out perfectly about how fast it went. 
Yeah, there was the the line in the poem. Um, uh, I just pulled it up here. the The poem is "The sun also rises," and you have one man ask another man how he went bankrupt, and so how did you go bankrupt? Asked two ways. Mike said gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> That's that was. Uh, I loved that quote. Uh, I used it in my Sunday school class um, as well. Um, I do want to ask one more question along these lines that would kind of spell out the the problem. And then I kind of want to get to more of the solution. Like, okay, here's the problem. And then there's the solution, right? Um, Before I do that, I saw Jared Moore was on here. I just wanted to go ahead and plug his book, The Lust of Flesh. He just uh, just published it within weeks ago, uh, making waves. Uh, Jared is excellent and excellent. um, Just theologian and just a faithful pastor. So I think I was plugging Jared's book. Uh, by the time we jumped off, which which I guess was good timing because it segues into I wanted to a- ask one more question just kind of before we get into the, you know, more into the, the, the solution. And it's one that I've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, so last summer at the SBC, there was this we had the annual meeting. I'm sure you were uh, at least aware of this. I know you're not SBC, but aware of what was happening. There was an amendment passed. Uh, to the Constitution that stated Southern Baptist churches must have only men as any kind of pastor or elder qualified by scripture. And this ended up leaving, uh, there's a huge debate about this, and um, two churches ended up leaving. In fact, five former presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention even attempted to undermine the amendment um, and are continuing to do so. Rick Warren had a fit and it was really the main subject of the debate, tried to play the semantic game by saying the office of pastor and the gift of pastor are separate. So he separates the office of pastor and the gift of pastor. And then you have all this within a cultural movement that can't seem to figure out, you know, what is a woman? What is a man? And so on. Um, And so when I read your book, it's not hard for me to think the same logic that we find in the gender confusion and androgyny is not unrelated to the same logic we find in the defense of women as pastors. Is that a stretch? Not at all. No, they're all they're they're all interconnected because all of them are so what so it's a, it's a Gnostic thing. So if you go back to the Gnostic thing we we're talking about a moment ago, um, Gnosticism is the idea that the body and like like the the body itself is is irrelevant to the um, to who you are. And so with that, let, let's say you add to that the what Rick Warren is doing, and I've seen others do it, where they'll separate. Um, They'll say basically it's like uh, the vocation of, of the elder doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman to to be a pastor. So like Warren is separating pastor from elder. Um, so he's like, it's, it's kind of, you know, in First Timothy 3, you have the office and then you have the function. Um, and they're saying like, well, it, it doesn't really matter if a man or a woman does the function as long as they don't hold the office. And it, it's a Gnostic idea that it, it, it's more like if somebody has the ability to do something, then their the their sex doesn't really matter. Um, it's it, it it's really it, it's a subtle thing to to try to separate that, but it's a way to to force people into the position. It, it's a way to to force the issue on women pastors by by creating this this halfway point, this this midway point where they're doing everything that pastors do, but we'll we'll throw a bone to the conservatives by not calling them pastors we'll call them ministers or or in uh or, or what you're saying like i've seen different people do different things so rick I've, I've st- sam storms sadly uh was the first person i saw articulate this and sam storms like he would say he's complementarian he's a reformed guy good guy uh yeah. but sam storms would say well you have the office of elder then you have the gift of pastor so you can have women pastors but not be elders i'm like that is <laughs> that that is a that is basically saying a woman can perform the function I'd created men to perform, right. but let's just not call her the title. And it's a, it, it, it is a Gnostic idea that says the body doesn't really matter um, as far as performing the function. So it, it really is a, it, it's, it's twisted and convoluted and it, it doesn't make sense. But and nature the, probably the wins out in the end, right? I mean, you could say that nature, you know, God did not, it's not about, um, you know, God didn't design women as pastors any more than d- God designed men as mothers. So, like, nature wins out in the end, right? Because, um, what am I trying to say? You yeah, see what gra- I'm saying? Gravity wins. Yeah. Like, like you said. Sooner or later. 
yeah, sooner or later, like the, the nature of a man and the nature of a woman is going to win. So what you do, if you want to have women pastors, um, you'll, there's a lot of different ways that people go about trying to make this happen. They'll, one way is to not use the title. It's like, let's have women doing everything that, that elders and pastors do, but we'll call them ministers. Um, and that's one way to, to skirt around the issue. The way they do it is they, um, will use like, this is what, um, like Andy Stanley, um, like, but, yeah, maybe I should, don't want to go down that, that rabbit trail right now. No, but, feel free, feel free. <laughs> but what, what they do is they'll, they'll either change the title or they change the, the nature of what eldership is. So if you notice the way that people define eldership, a lot of times in reformed churches now, what made pastor, they're all feminine characteristics. It's, it's basically somebody who listens and who is tender and they're going to hold your hand at the bedside. And it's, they're all feminine characteristics. It's basically a pastor is somebody who's super nurturing. Um, but there's, where's the warrior? Where's the fighter? Where's the truth teller? Where's the bold, courageous person? Um, those values are not, are not seen. So when you think of the ideal pastor, what a lot of people think of in our reformed church is the ideal pastor, the ideal elder is going to be somebody who's very feminine. And then what does that do whenever you have an actual masculine pastor? One, it's like he seems mean and you don't want to have anything to do with him. Um, but then you also think like, well, if I, I can think of women that are better pastors than these men that are my elders currently, and it's because the definition that's operative in their mind is feminized. And yeah. that's, that's just another way to get around the issue so that we can have women elders, but there's a number of ways that we can do it. And it's all a denial of the reality. So the, the point of the book is that God designed men a certain way. God designed women. that design corresponds with certain vocations that he has for us to play in the home and in the church and in society. It's, uh, it, it is a, it is a broad and expansive thing, vocation and men generally need to operate, uh, be the leaders of society, the ones that are, um, exercising dominion and rule and headship. And women are the ones that are creating the bringing nurturing and they are the ones who are beautifying and completing um whenever we whenever we operate according to the to that design um then men and women tend to do well it is glorifying to god it is that that is the that is the main of creation um mm. but like i said earlier it's like we are in rebellion against reality and sexuality is the one of the chief ways that it's happening well that's actually a really great segue into um you know, we, we've talked a lot about the problem, and I want to talk more about this, you know, this solution. Um, I want to start it with, I've heard C.R. Wiley talk about this too, but you talk about the cosmic household. And can you just explain for anyone who doesn't understand what that means or hasn't read the book, just kind of the overview of what you mean by a cosmic household? Um, so I would say it this way. Um, I would say God created the universe of creation has a household pattern. Um, so like a sim the way that we typically think of this is like God, we have God up there floating up in the sky and, you know, he decided, well, I want to create some people. I want to, I want to do this. Um, I want to, I want to create human beings. Like, well, we'll, we'll have, make a, a, a male one and a female one and they can get married and have babies. And that's totally this, this thing that he created just for humanity. Um, and I think it's plastic and that is not what, <laughs> That's if you if we zoom out and really see like theologically, we see the all of creation has this sort of shape of a household. You have God as a father. Um, uh, he has a the, the feminine. Um, God is in a relationship with a feminine and the feminine he's in a relationship ultimately is the church. Um, but God is the head. He is the eternal. He is the um, the one who has who, who takes responsibility for his for the feminine, which the pattern of relationship, Ephesians 5, is Christ and the church. Um, but that's, so that, that's like a cosmic household idea. Um, and even the angelic realm is part of God's household. All through, um, if through scripture, you see, you, you see this, this angelic host being God is surrounded by a spiritual realm that is, that is part of his spiritual household. And then you have in um, this pattern of the way that God this household pattern is written into the created order. Um, and the household pattern is this headship of the, the husband, the male, he's a head of a house. Mm -hmm. And then that, so like the, the, the various, the various, um, the household is like in a, at a civ civic level to where the kingdom, like a kingdom is like a household where the king is, is like a father over his domain. 
Um, and a queen is like the mother over a domain, but it is also, so that's just a writ large, a household pattern that, uh, the smallest version is a husband and a wife and their children. Um, right. the church is a household, um, where the fathers of the church are the elders. Um, you see the church itself as a mother, the, the, the church bears children, uh, through discipleship and evangelism and people being raised up in the faith. This household pattern is inescapable because God ordered the creation this way. Um, but it is, it is often, often the way we think of it is merely as a household. We think of it just as the nuclear family, husband, wife, kids. And that's just, that's just the thing God invented for the sake of populating the earth. When in reality, it's a cosmic pattern that, um, it, it, it tells the story of God's, I don't know. I'll stop there. Oh, that that was great, Michael. Um, and I think it kind of showcases God's intention with with marriage that it wasn't kind of this trivial thing that you know there, without marriage there's no dominion mandate. So I, I saw um, I don't know that this woman who's getting very popular kind of among just disenfranchised men, and she said on Twitter a few weeks ago, Adam was far better off before Eve came along. Right? You know, Adam Adam would have done much better without Eve, and Reality is, Matt, Adam, Adam would have completely, he wouldn't have been, have been able to even um, expand this, you know, this cosmic household or take dominion without Eve, you know, because there, there'd be no, there'd be no children without Eve. Yeah, so, this, uh, that Pearl, Pearl something. Yeah, yeah. I, I try not to use your name because I don't want oh, to. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Strike uh, that. She drives <laughs> um, well, that, that, that was excellent, Michael. Um, and I have a, just so everyone knows, we're only on chapter two, or uh, only on the first chapter. We did the intro in the first chapter, but I will jump to uh, a little bit later in the book because I want to stick on this theme of household. Um, and you talk, you get a little bit more specific. You start talking about the productive household. And this is a question I have about this because you say that the household is now, uh, and you quote uh, Nancy Piercy. Um, in this, and you say that uh, the household now is less productive, a little bit smaller, and less central to the civil life. That family members spend most of their time in kind of these separate spheres, working apart from one another. And you mentioned that kind of the industrial re- revolution, um, industrial industrialization, was this contributing factor that took men out of the home, and then later on, women started getting out of the home, and then you know, children are going to school. And then home kind of becomes this place where it's not no longer productive, but it's where you um, kind of take a breath from mm-hmm. the productivity out there. And so my question is, how in this kind of this post-industrial world in 2023 can families recapture that um, that family union within the household where the household is productive again? How you know what what are ways a household? How can a household do that now? Yeah, that, this was one of the one of the bigger aha moments for me. Um, I see Michael Foster is um, on the space. Hey, Michael, good to see you. Um, I mentioned Michael's name because I, he and I were I, I was talking with Michael on the phone uh, a good bit during this time when we were talking about the household and uh, some of the things that I was learning, some of the things he was learning, and uh, you know, it was, it was, it was really a lot of things came together in this idea of the household and how industrialization changed it. Uh, basically, what industrialization did was it took work out of the household mm-hmm. and moved it off site. Um, before that, up until industrial revolution, for all of human history, the household was a place of work. Um, and so the foundation, one of the foundational layers of the book and the argument that I'm making is that work is integral into the household. Um, and so it, work, work is like a glue that holds people together. Um, so if, if, if your wife, let's say, for example, you don't get along very well, and the only really purpose of your marriage is sentimental attachment. And if you don't like her that much, then you might just like, well, I want to get a divorce and find somebody else I like better. But if you're working together at a business and you, you rely on each other, it's like, she does these things, I do those things. And we've got a lot of productive enterprise that's happening out of our household, then one, it's like it holds the relationship together. But two, that is a that is also a foundation of your intimacy. It's like you 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 learn to love one another as you work together, as you depend on one another, you value one another in deep. Industrialization took work out of the household, which household is more the nuclear family, and the home is a place of entertainment. Um, so it's like home is I I I go I go home, I watch TV, you know, play on the internet, and you know we entertain ourselves. So it used to be a place of production. Now the home is a place of consumption. 
and that has wrecked the household. Now, the thing is, we can't turn the clock back um, 200 years, nor do I think it wouldn't be good to do that. I mean, in the sense that there's a lot of advantages that modern life affords us, like the the, the technology and like, like starvation, you know, poverty, things like this are industrialization has brought a lot of good into the world and we can't turn the clock back anyway. So I, th- I think what we need to do is try to capture some of what was lost, not in a way to, I mean, there's like this prairie muffin uh, idea of homesteading and not everybody's cut out for that. Um, but I think that if, if you can bring productivity and interdependence and work back into household life, um, that is going to, th- that's going to be um, an important step. So I would basically say, if you want to be a part of building the new Christendom, then concepts have to be some of the foundational bricks that you lay in the foundation of your life. It's like, what does it mean for me to be a man or for me to be a woman? How, what kind of marriage am I going to have? What sort of household are we going to have? So I would say, have a vision, have a, have, uh, I know Foster talks about this a lot and um, it's good to be a man. Like, what is your mission? And if you have a mission, then your wife, then if you have a clear mission, then your wife knows what she is going to submit to because of her, her submission implies a prior mission that she's submitting to. So I think a, a man needs to know what is my mission? What are we doing? And generally speaking, every, every godly household, their mission is to, uh, the, the, you're producing disciples, um, but not merely just Christians, but people that can be productive members of society. So you're, you're building future patriarchs in your sons and future matriarchs in your daughters. And that is, that is where, that is where we need to build. That's been lost in our society. Largely it's been abandoned and we're rebelling against reality, but Christians, we will be the ones that are here rebuilding in the rubble whenever the rest of society burns itself down. And we need to be prepared for this. So I think men embrace being a man, women uh, embrace being a woman, a productive household, have a vision for what you want to do, be productive, be self-sustaining as much as you can, Um, teach your children to do the same, give them chores. Um, There's households, ideally households are are businesses where lots of things are happening um, and you're building, you're working, you're learning, you're crafting, you're creating, you're producing output. Um, that's, those are the kind of households that are going to make it whenever yeah. the rest of society is burning to the ground uh, and falling apart as it's currently doing. These are the kind of households that'll make it. Um, and these are lost skills. Uh, and I think about uh, my, I'll say this one, one more thing and then I'll shut up. <laughs> um, I, I had a conversation with Abigail Dodds on her podcast. And um, one of the things she talked about was a lot of women don't have skills um, of ha- household skills. So they don't know how to take care of a baby. Um, they don't meals, they don't know how to, uh, manage finances and that sort of thing. Um, and so the idea of homemaking, homeschooling of, uh, raising, raising children, that's like, that is so foreign to them because they didn't grow up around, but they taught them how to do it. And so a lot of this is just recapturing a lot of skills, uh, hard real world skills that have been lost. Um, like uh, to, to, to the, for you to insinuate, like, let's say like we, we have this ministry at our church called Mom Collective, and this ministry is wonderful because it teaches skills. Um, when we get together, I'm like, all right, we're going to talk about um, budgeting um, this time. All right. And they'll, and they'll, they'll the thing. Or the next time we're going to do a Christmas craft, learn how to make Christmas ornaments, learning how to do things. Um, and those are the sorts of things I think are, will, will fuel the fires for productivity in the household that has been lost. All right. I'll, I'll stop there. Cause I, I know I've said a lot. I, I love that example you give too. I mean, Paul talks about in Titus two for um, older women to you know, disciple and younger women and to virtue. And so that was great. And um, I, I think one of the most helpful parts of your book uh, and, and the other book you referenced um, is this of a mission. And I think this was, it's, if you I mean, please go pick up Michael's book and um, read this chapter, and it's it's so helpful because having this mission, read this, uh, um, it's kind of an aha, like oh, of course, of course, if I don't have a mission that I'm on, um, who's going to follow you if you don't if you're just uh, kind of guiding blindly, right? Yeah. Or moving. Blindly. So um, I think that was one of the most helpful parts of your book, and uh, really appreciate that as well. And thanks for that explanation. Um, I, I was, you know, I, I heard this when I first heard the industrial revolution 
thing, you know, I, I kind of got a little bit uh, just worried and stressed out about it and thinking, man, how, how do you go back, you know, and you can't. And so um, I think the information you provided here in your book is really helpful and gives kind of practical steps to reclaim that productive household. And a lot of it starts with mission. And then, um, of course, you know, uh, leaning into your design as a man and a woman. So mm-hmm. um, I do you mentioned you alluded to this earlier. And, you know, a lot of times the devils and the details. What I love about your book, I, I've read a lot of these books lately, these type of books lately on Can't Impress. and. Um, they've been really good. And um, I like how this this wasn't a slam at any of the books on Canon Press. I don't know why I mentioned that. But uh, uh, <laughs> your book in particular, though, what I really appreciate about it, it gets really detailed. Um, and so I bring this up because a lot of Christians see these differences between men and women. They can see like physiology and physical differences like, oh, you're a man and you're a woman. I, and I don't think a lot of times they go further than that, though. Um, and a lot of time you talk about um, nature and our, our bodies kind of corresponding to if you're a man, then you're broader, you're typically stronger than a woman. And, uh, you know, God designed that for masculine purposes, like protecting, providing. And if you're a woman, you're generally softer and you can, you know, you physically nurture um, their, their children. Um, there's this great line in this this children's book that talks about. I can't remember the rhyme, so never mind. I'm not going to do it. But you know, <laughs> they, they're literally designed to nurture, and um, so the women are good nurturers. Um, and this is also why, in kind of in those old movies where you see a cowboy get scraped up by someone fighting the bad guy, or maybe he was just fighting, a, getting a challenge. The woman is usually tending to his wounds, and there's this romantic undertone. And um, it's because the the men are more, uh, you know, the men are fighters, and the men are. Um, protectors and providers and these women are nurturers but i'm curious what other ways do these these differences not just not these physical differences but how else are men and women different i know that sounds like a broad question but i I am trying to lead on knowing i've already read the book um and you've already alluded to it earlier very briefly but i kind of want to get into more of the, you know, the devil's in the details, going to go into the details on the differences between men and women. Women are nurturers and men are, you know, providers. What does that mean? And what else is there should we, that we should, you know, think about? Is that too broad of a question? I feel like that was too broad of a question, but let me know. No, that's fine. Um, I can, I, I can, uh, um, you know, riff on this for a bit. You can tell me if this is, this is, um, helpful to you, uh, to the conversation. Um, what she wants to do, I heard Jen Wilkin say something like this once in a talk um, where she says, okay, we know that men and women are different, but we want to, um, we want to make sure that we emphasize and highlight and the thing we prioritize in our conversation is how we're the same. Um, and I've heard the evolutionists make the same argument about chimpanzees saying like, well, 97% of our DNA is the same. So let's that therefore we're, you know, we're the same, but they, they do that to minimize distinction. Right. But what, what the devil does is he, um, it, it, he, he rebels against hierarchy. Um, he rebels against the distinctions and wants to make everything the same. So we've got the biological differences and sure, like the, the thing, the areas that were, that were the same, um, are, are obvious and the ways that we're biologically different are obvious. But the thing is like the, the male brain is different than a female brain, the way they are different. Um, and these differences correspond to, um, the, the, the differences are observable and they do have some correspondence to our bodies. Um, but they also correspond to the duties and vocations that God assigns to us according to our sex. Um, so at the most top level, you see this in the garden. Um, God created Adam to be a provider. Um, he's to work and keep the garden. That means he's going to cultivate the soil and he's going to guard it. So to keep it means he's going to protect it. Um, but God gave Adam and Eve a command, fill the earth and Adam can't fill the earth by himself. He can't reproduce alone. So God said, it's not good that he's alone. He needs a counterpart. He needs a helper that can reproduce. And so he created woman and her vocation as a biologically integrated. Um, so she can, within her own body, know what her primary vocation is, because all of the things about a female body that make it female 
are oriented towards bearing in their life. And the, the female body, even just not just the the most obvious, you know, the the breast to feed the child and the womb to right. carry the child. But the I've, I've seen this. Um, I've seen things going around. Uh, I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was it was like a little short little write up where somebody did about what happens in a mother's breast milk. And if there's an infection, or if there's an illness and how um, just how her body transforms and, and there's this um, it, it's almost like it carries an antibody within her breast milk that she personally and the child benefits from whenever one of them gets ill. It, it's amazing this, the, 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 the incredible detail and intricacy of how God designed the female body. Um, and so we have these, these basic vocations. The, fem- the woman's vocation is biologically integrated. God created her to nurture life. The man's vocation needs to be discovered um, because fatherhood is a very minor thing physically and biologically for him. But the duties of fatherhood, of providing and protecting, are going to take him in any number of uh, – it, it could be anything. It's like you could be an engineer. It could be you know all the different things that a man might do to provide for his family. Right. Um, and that's why you see men do tend to be more aggressive. They tend to be stronger, faster. They're bigger. Um, men tend to um, – men are on the the top and bottom of the scale and everything they go to extremes so men are the most intelligent people on earth are men and the stupidest people on earth are men um the <laughs> yeah. most talented and creative talented and creative are are, are often go, um, they're going to, men just tend to proportionally find themselves on the extremes of everything because that's what it, it takes this that's what it takes for a man to be the provider and the protector um Whereas women tend to be more moderate because they are going to be, you know, taking care of children typically because that is the vocation that God has typically given for women. Um, so for all these, there is a, there are differences, um, but a lot of times the the differences it just stops at well men do these things and women do these things and yes. we're different and that's all it is. But the differences have a purpose, and and that's the thing that I that I think we miss. And that purpose is is connected to the vocation for which God created us. Now, whenever you say something like that, um, the egalitarians and the feminist type of people freak out because <laughs> they can always think of an example that doesn't fit what- I was literally the- just about to ask this question. What do you say to the person who says, wait, so does that mean men can't, I've seen my husband nurture my child, or what about the single moms who can't who need to provide for their child? What do you do with these- these exceptions that come your way. Yeah. The thing is like, I, the, the, the exceptions are taken to disprove the rule. Um, and it's anecdotal reasoning. Um, so if you say, well, you know, there's this form of cancer and it kills 90, you know, it, this, this, this form of cancer is, is fatal. And somebody says, well, I know my uncle Frank, you know, he survived that form of cancer. That doesn't mean that, the statement you just made is not true. Right. Um, anecdotal reasoning. If you can find some exception to the rule that does not negate the rule. Um, and so anytime you, you speak in generalities, people freak out. And that's a, for us to have wisdom to be able to think about how do we live in this world? We have to think in generalities and we have to think in terms of there are exceptions and to not let the exceptions disprove the rule. Um, so if somebody, and, and this is the thing, like, you have your differences, men and women, and you have men in the aggregate and women in the aggregate. Generally speaking, they're going to follow certain patterns. The biological ones are hardwired. The more social, psycho- psychological, um, personality type ones, those are those are going to be a little bit more blurry, a little bit more generalized. But for the most part, they follow patterns. And when the places where there are exceptions that break the rule, that need not be taken as a moral imperative. And I think that's one of the things that freak people out too, is if you, if, if you say that women are nurturers and women, their priority should be the home, there's a lot of rigid moral imperatives that arise that freak people out mm-hmm. that say, well, what are you saying? A woman can't have a job. What are you saying? A woman has to stay at home all the time and she's got to be just this. Um, and they've got this long list of things that kind of freak him out. And I think that's why it's like, no, that's where you work it out between the two of you, um, where you are a productive household. And so there are certain things that might be more typical for a woman to excel at in my home that I just happen to be better at and vice versa. And I'm like, there's going to be little areas here and there where we're like, okay, I want to do, I want to do this thing and you'll do that thing. And we figure out how do we cover all the bases? 
but but the 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 overall the overall mission of the home um i think i'm responsible for that so i know i know some households where the man he always pays the bills and manages the finances and i know other households where the wife she manages the finances because you know maybe she's just like my stepmother she's yeah. a genius with math you know she taught yeah. math in schools for 30 years so it's like she's great at math so the husband is out of the home so he's responsible for that and as the responsible party then he's going to look at his resources and say okay what do i need to do what does she need to do how do we how do we um navigate these various responsibilities for us to um build this household together and then you you establish a division of labor between you um i i do think some of those some of the the, the thing is like so much of this is in lives in the realm of wisdom and people are people don't want to live in the realm of wisdom they want they want tell me what the rules are um wisdom is hard work you know what i mean like how do you even read proverbs with that type of i mean <laughs> all the time it generalizes all the time like, yeah so uh you know what i mean yeah well, yeah the book of proverbs the book of proverbs is filled with all kinds of generalities and you assume exceptions right. um and, and but the thing is like pattern recognition is how we gain wisdom and if you can't recognize patterns of the way things generally are then you're going to be stupid you're not going to have any wisdom right um, but the wise man knows hey son I, like like you think of a wise father talking to you he'll say hey son let me tell you about the way women are and you know and he's going to say that it's going to be gold because you know like you got this sage old man that can tell you about the way of women are <laughs> but at the same time you know there's going to be exceptions to that but you want to listen to that wisdom um, yeah, yeah, but modern the modern world in general and modern Christians, you know, are about the same. We we just have this allergic reaction to dealing with patterns and with with wisdom and figuring things out and negotiating. We want to know the rules, um, but that's just that's not going to be very practical when you're trying to apply principles of sexuality. So the, the, the book is written with a lot of these things in mind that we have to be practical and deal in wisdom. Right. Uh, you have this excellent quote. I, I wrote it down, but I, I don't remember who you were quoting someone and I can't remember who it was, but it's on this completely related to this, um, this topic. So I wanted to read it real quick. Uh, it says men are more prone to abstraction and women are more prone to focus on the concrete. Men don't mind that Mind what is impersonal. Women are more attuned to the nuances of relationships and to what is going on with people. Men tend to be specialists and single um, and uh, um, risk takers. He develops certain qualities to an unusually high pitch, using them to do things in the world. A woman tends to be a generalist and a multitasker, and she inclines to a more rounded development of her abilities, and so on. He goes on a list like this, and I thought it was really good. I also thought it was really relevant because my wife is a multitasker and I'm not. I'm zoned in on one task, but. Um, <laughs> Well, you need a multitasker to to manage your household the way women yeah. uh, typically do. When you think about it, it's uh, you, you'd have to be there's especially when you have children running around the house, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you, you you may have heard this old um, expression that men are like a file cabinet and women are like a plate of spaghetti in the way I, they think. One, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't heard the file cabinet. I have heard women like spaghetti, but it was another uh, food another food group. Yeah, but but what do men do? Um, men, they they categorize. So just like you know, God gave Adam a task in the garden. He said, "Go name all the animals." And you know, people will, you know, people take that to mean you know that God he was he was doing like the work of a uh, uh, a zoologist. He's he's <laughs> categorizing. Here's this species right. and this genus and this kind of animal. Um, so he's categorizing, and that's men do that. They separate. Um, women integrate, um, and that's what you see with you know with a um, with with childbearing you know a woman gets pregnant and for the 40 weeks of gestation she's integrating like um her body is pulling in resources and knitting things together even psalm 139 talks about being knit together women integrate men tend to separate and that's the way men and women think um men focus on one thing at a time so th that's why men go to extremes it's like if you want to know like the best um uh, you know the best uh, let's say cellist in the world um, is going to be somebody with a singular focus and dedication to get to the absolute peak of his skill. That's typically that's going to be a man because right. men, men focus on one thing and they, they go after it like a dog chewing on a bone. Women tend to integrate and the, they, they are seeing lots of things at the same time. Um, they're more relationally attuned. They're going to prioritize 
they're, they're going to be thinking about how to be, how does whatever she's doing, how does it affect the people that she cares about? And neither one is better than the other. You want both. You need men who specialize and do a handful of things really well. And you need women and people who are attuned to relationships. That's important. What, what feminism and the modern world has done is it's created this competition to where everybody's trying to do the male, uh, the male task. Um, everybody wants to excel in the world of men, the career, that sort of thing, getting recognized in the marketplace. And few people want to really uh, attend to the needs of the home and building households. That's, that's being more, um, more neglected in today's world. Right. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's the world is less chaotic when men are acting like men and women are acting like women. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, we did want to open it up. If anyone had any uh, questions or comments for Michael, we wanted to give that opportunity. Um, but if not, we can go ahead and um, call it a night. So does anyone have any questions or, or comments? I'll leave it open here for a sec. All right. Well, um, Mike, thank you for jumping on uh, this, this call. Please go get Michael's book, God's Good Design. It is excellent. I, it's kind of my standard right now. I'm recommending it to everyone. Um, and uh, thanks again, Credo Alliance, for setting this up. Um, you can, um, is, it's Credo Alliance is a network of individuals building the Baptist future. Uh, more at CredoAlliance.com or here on X. Uh, follow them on, on X here. Or, or I'm just going to call it Twitter. I refuse to call it X. Follow them on Twitter. Um, with all that being said, everyone have a good evening. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Sure thing, Michael. See you guys. Bye.